Okay, can you just start by saying your name and um, what you're currently doing in life? Yeah, so I'm Emma Flint and I'm a um, first year psychiatry trainee at the moment. Okay, um, and uh, what were you doing in Oxford um, in, in the last um, six years or so? <laughs> so I um, studied medicine at Oxford, so I started there in 2014 and um, I, yeah, so I did the six year medical course there and then I um, did my foundation years also in Oxford and now I've stayed to do psychiatry training in Oxford. So I've been there, <laughs> been there for a little while now. Right. OK, um, so going back um, to, to the very beginning, how did you first get interested in in studying medicine? So I think I probably first started getting interested in studying medicine maybe when I was about uh 12 or 13 and I think I was thinking about what I would like to do and I liked a lot of different subjects at school I quite like languages and art and things as well as science but um I wanted to pick something where I felt like I could make a bit of a difference that I could do something that I felt quite fulfilling and would involve science but also would involve a kind of more caring role so it was obvious to think about maybe medicine or something like nursing midwifery so I kind of considered all of all of those um, and also teaching um, and basically just did a, a quite a bit of kind of work experience and um, sort of voluntary experience and that's what led me down the road in the end I really enjoyed it so I decided to do medicine. Mm, mm. Do you have any medics in your family? No I don't so I'm the first person in my family to go to, to university um, and there's no one kind of medical or, or even in nursing or anything in, in my mm. family. Um, so it was a bit of a different path, I guess. Uh, a bit kind of, uh, we didn't really know what it would be like going to university or going more studying medicine. And I think that made it quite difficult in a way when I was trying to decide because it was quite difficult to get work experience and things when you don't know anybody mm. who, who works in medicine. But um, I'm very grateful to, you know, I, I had, I got quite lucky as I went along that I managed to meet people along the way where I, if I kind of volunteered in one hospital and then there'd be someone who would um, be quite kind and realise that I didn't know anyone in medicine. So then they would suggest other opportunities and things like that. So, you know, that's why I always tell people if they don't know anybody and they're thinking about medicine, just take whatever opportunities present themselves because there'll be kind people along the way who will kind of help you. Mm, mm. Um, so what kind of volunteer roles were you doing? Um, so I did um, a lot of work with children with learning difficulties at mm -hmm. a local um, a local school um, which is it, it, it's kind of mixed ability school but they have a lot of uh, special needs work which was um, really interesting and um, I also kind of unrelated to medicine I did a lot of working with children just in a holiday club and then um, I basically just wrote letters out to all of the GP practices and hospitals that I could uh, think of that were remotely commutable from where I lived um, and one hospital there was a, a lady in the voluntary team there who um, saw the letter and got back to me and that was a, like a eye hospital um, and so uh, she just said oh you know I thought it was unusual that you sent a letter rather than an email so I, I that's why I picked up on it and so I was really lucky that she was so kind and basically uh, I through that managed to do some volunteering at an eye hospital so mm. I was helping patients 
but just before they were going for cataract surgeries and things. So I just helped them with kind of getting, you know, tea afterwards and helping them and their relatives feel relaxed before. But it meant that I had a chance to chat to some anaesthetists and kind of watch the videos of the procedures. So it gave me a bit of exposure. And then mm. um, and then there was a lovely anaesthetist there who basically then said, oh, you're interested particularly in, um, I was interested especially in obstetrics at the time and kind of delivering babies which was why I was considering midwifery too and so he had a contact who was a gynecologist so then I got a bit of work experience through that so it was very much just kind of you know just being willing to do whatever and just kind of enjoying it for what it is Mm. and then people seeing that you're interested in then they were really kind to like offer other opportunities. Mm. And how did you go about choosing where to study? So I grew up in Slough, so not very far away from Oxford. So, um, I mean, a big part of kind of deciding was that I wanted somewhere quite near to home so I could see my family quite often, but also not um, not so close that I didn't kind of have my own separate life and, and everything. So, I, you know, I wanted something relatively close and I really liked that Oxford was quite a traditional course. Um in that it had a uh, pro section as a part of the course where you um, you work on, um, you, you kind of see bodies that have been dissected so that you can learn anatomy from them. I think that that was really appealing to me as a part of the course. I thought it'd be really helpful. Um, and I really liked the idea of the tutorial system and having that kind of close um, working relationship with, with a tutor and a few other students um, a bit more like a family sort of atmosphere um so those things really drew me about the oxford course um and uh yeah and so i so i decided to apply i never i kind of thought that it was a bit of a long shot given that um my background and that i hadn't you know no i didn't have much experience of what it might be like to go to university but um yeah so i applied there and i applied to cardiff leicester and whole york medical school as well and and you got in so and uh, and yeah. how, how did you find the experience of being a medical student at oxford i really enjoyed it um there were definitely uh difficult difficult parts to it i mean it wasn't an easy ride by any means uh, but it was um uh, really uh, fun really interesting um and I kind of I, I definitely enjoyed probably the clinical years more it's more what I'm inclined towards um, but I did love the fact that we had a year to do a research project um, as well I thought it was really important that we got that experience and that exposure and I loved the tutorials of the first few years like I said that kind of family atmosphere I was at Wadham College and it's quite um, a close-knit community that everybody knows all the different years um, and uh I'd say kind of especially the clinical years I always say to students I tutor there now so I'm a tutor at the college um, I always say just enjoy the medical school years because it's kind of almost a bit like you're a medical tourist in a way like you get to see all the most interesting and best bits of the different specialties and just have a bit of a, like a taster of everything and mm. just go where the interesting things are happening so just make the most of it um, and you see some incredible things um so it's a very you know privileged position to to be in mm. and, and what did you do your research project on 
my research project so I was because I was still quite interested in obstetrics at that time so a lot of my research and things that I've done has been geared towards that um so at that project was um looking at um endometriosis um and so it, it was an epidemiological project looking at the relationship between endometriosis sort of subtypes and severity and how it relates to metabolic measures. So kind of BMI and uh, waist to hip ratio adjusted for BMI, um, essentially because the genetic, there's a, a SNP, a genetic variant that um, seems to be associated both with endometriosis and with um, uh, me metabolic variables. Basically, they think it's associated with obesity. So um, basically, you tend to find that women who have um, a, a kind of lower waist hip ratio adjusted for BMI tend to have a greater severity um, of, of endometriosis, although it wasn't a very, I didn't really find a massively strong association, but that's the, that was the working idea. And mm, um, it mm. was quite interesting. It was, mm. you know, I didn't really show much of significance, but it was an interesting idea. Mm. Um, and, and has that made you think that research is something you'd like to include in your career as you go forward? So it definitely, um, it definitely interested me and I've done some other bits since and I did an academic foundation program. So I, I did a research, research in my foundation years as well. Um, I would say I, I definitely wouldn't rule it out, but I would say that the more I've done research, the more I've realized that to really, uh, I guess, make the most of it and to really find it enjoyable and something that you um, don't mind going that kind of extra 110% for because you have to especially if you're an academic clinician because you will do a lot of it in your free time you will do a lot of it on evenings after you've already spent a really busy day in clinic and things it has to be something that you're really interested in so so much and that you find passionate you're passionate about and you're um, you've got that drive for and I guess I haven't found my area of that in research like I found things very interesting and really enjoyable but I if I do it I think I want to maybe come back to it later on once I found my niche in my clinical work so that mm -hmm. I then find that relevance for me um, yeah. so I, I wouldn't rule it out kind of I, I I really had a thought for a while about whether I would do an academic clinic clinical fellowship go straight from the founding academic foundation program to that and then actually I thought actually I've done a lot of I, so I did a lot of work in the obstetrics and gynecology and then I did a bit in my academic foundation stuff was in uh, pediatrics because I was thinking more pediatrics then and then actually now I've gone into psychiatry and I thought <laughs> actually maybe just focus on the clinical for a bit and then come back to it later if it's something grabs you when you're mm. you know a registrar and then you know what you're going to be focusing on because then it'll be something you're really passionate and interested in. Mm. And is it the psychiatry that you think you're going to be sticking with now? Yeah, so that's yep. my that's my chosen specialty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's exciting. And I, I noticed from your LinkedIn profile that uh, <laughs> you also did some volunteering as a, as a student or as a first responder. Yes, uh, yeah, I did. Um, do you so mean, how, so, tell me about so, that? How, how how did that come about? So so that was um, so with the ambulance service. Mm. So um, that was um, kind of. A, a program that they've done for quite a few years where um you can um 
do some kind of basic training in sort of first response and first aid and so a day or two course I think if I remember right and you pair up with another student usually originally with someone who's a bit more experienced than you and then eventually you can do it with your peers and there's a little ambulance car that we have at the John Radcliffe and you sign on like a normal ambulance would do and make yourself available for calls and then they can send you um, to see patients and you will, um, the idea is basically that you might get there quicker because you might happen to be nearer to an emergency than an available crew. And you can give the first sort of treatments and first line response to, to the patients. Um, and it's especially helpful if it's something like a, a heart attack, cardiac arrest, um, because you have a defibrillator. So if you can get a CPR and a defibrillator there quicker, you can really improve their chances of survival. But it's also obviously useful for other things too. Like if you can, um, you know, if you can find out that they've got low blood sugar, you can then potentially get them to have something sugary, things like that, where you can make a quick difference. Um, and yeah, so I, I, as soon as that was um, an option which for me they piloted for the first time when we were in actually still in the preclinical years so in my third year I signed up to do it and so I did it from the third year um, and then up until the sixth year and uh, in my I think it was my fifth year I, I became a, a team leader and I coordinated the program and trained the younger um, volunteers and I loved it it was really interesting good opportunity mm. for students to get involved in kind of helping in their community and in um getting some exposure to what medicine's like in the real world so mm. Mm. yeah I would always recommend that to people yeah yeah and and getting a, a as you say exposure to um kind of frontline emergency care as well and seeing yeah how and yeah. and having just a better understanding of how what life's like for your colleagues what the job is like for your colleagues because I think that then later on, when I've done jobs in A&E or in other specialties, I have a much greater understanding of what being a paramedic's like, what it's like um, managing patients in the community. You know, you know, for instance, you, you go to a patient and actually, if you make the decision that they can uh, be managed in the community and not go to A&E, what that actually involves. And actually, sometimes that can be you know, even hours on the phone trying to sort that out for them just to save that one patient from going into A&E and, and, you know, relieve, relieve the work for A&E. But that's a massive undertaking sometimes and often a lot more work than just taking them into A&E. Um, but having that appreciation of the fact that they have, you know, they have that as part of their role. And if, if they do manage to keep a patient out of A&E that's more appropriately managed in the community, that's often a massive undertaking for them. You know, things like that, it's invaluable to have that understanding of mm. people's, you know, work and roles. Mm, mm. So let's um, arrive at 2020. So you, um, you qualified essentially in the, in the spring, is that, that right? Yeah, so yeah. I basically, yeah, I basically, um, when, when things were sort of kind of hotting up about the pandemic in in the UK sort of around March time and it was becoming more um you know it was definitely the medical school starting to talk to us about it and things at that point I had just essentially finished all of the compulsory parts of my um course there's kind of two groups of students in final final year and and you you do it on the different um 
you either do your elective first and then you do all the other bits of the compulsory course that you need to finish off or you do it the other way around and I happened to be in the group that had done the compulsory bits and not the um the elective period so I just and, finished that so and what were you um, planning to do for your elective so I was going to go to Australia and New Zealand um for three months um and so I actually just and I I so it was a bit it's a bit of a long story but basically the short version is that I um ended up in Australia and had to come straight back um, oh goodness so um I went to start my elective but um for an unrelated reason the plane was delayed and so during um I missed my connecting flight from Singapore to Australia and in the kind of time that that delay caused they changed the rules that meant that you'd have to isolate as soon as you enter Australia so I did that with my friend um and then shortly after arriving our placements cancelled and a lot of our accommodation cancelled and the UK was saying you know come back if you're you know if you're a UK national and you're abroad come back because you might not be able to otherwise um but also I received an email from the medical school saying you know would you be able to help uh in in A&E because you've finished these compulsory parts of the course so you're um you've you're able and qualified to help can you help so me and my friend made the decision actually we need to come straight back so we basically came back within within two or three three days so um it was a, a bit unfortunate but um uh, so I came back and I uh, volunteered in the A&E during the time that I would have been in my elective. Mm, mm. Well, that must have been, well, on the one hand, very disappointing. But I guess knowing that there was something you could do uh, helped a bit. yeah it was it was quite disappointing um and it wasn't a decision we took lightly because we, we you know we, we did think you know 
if we stayed maybe we we could spend some time in in Australia or find something to be helpful with in Australia potentially um but we we made the decision that um especially as soon as we got the email saying that we could help in in um in Oxford that you know that was the place we wanted to be that we could help and um hopefully you know make a small kind of difference there um so yeah it was really disappointing I mean we planned it for two years so Mm. um and we you know booked everything there was a risk that we would lose a lot of money as well um luckily um our travel grants basically covered a lot of the loss but you know we never got any money back for any of the flights and things Um, they kind of gave credit which had to be used within a year so obviously I could never use credit in Australia within the year (laughs) during the Covid situation so um you know it was it, it you know it was a big it was a big thing and it was a once in a lifetime opportunity really I mean now that we're doctors it's not like we'll ever have that length of time off again or not off but you know available to work in another country unless we take time out of training yeah so so yeah it was disappointing but it was you know an exceptional circumstance there you know and and what I ended up doing was um I felt really you know valuable for me and and I felt that um I couldn't in good conscience be anywhere else really no indeed indeed um so, um, I mean, what I hadn't asked you, there's a question I usually ask everybody first, which is, what, can you remember when you first heard that the pandemic was happening and, and how quickly you realised that it was something that was going to affect you? I think I remember um, first sort of hearing about it um, in reference to, to the situation in China maybe a couple of months before then I don't know maybe sort of late January February I can't really remember sort of yes. that time yeah um and I suppose the situation in in Italy oh, you've come was, back <laughs> uh, <laughs> Very um, um, I suppose the situation in Italy was um when it uh, especially started to feel real here but um I think I remember sort of oddly so there was still obviously events and things going on not very long before things started to close down in in uh, in in the UK and I I was at um a concert in I think it was February or something like that um and I remember then that was the first time I remember thinking oh actually there's is this this is a bit weird that this is happening still and that that was the first time I was thinking mm, I, I think things are going to change soon <laughs> but 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 uh, all the advice you were getting was that you should still head off to Australia yeah at the time yeah, yeah exactly and 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 at the time there was seen nothing wrong with that that concert happening and things you know it was um there was no recommendations against that the UK was very much still of you know the message going out was that there's nothing to worry about there's minimal cases you know so this was you know massive concert in London that was just still happening and then I had no problem with traveling and everybody said go you know if anything go now (laughs) Um, uh, so it's it just it was a situation that escalated very quickly I guess and that's Mm. why and obviously Australia took a much more um 
direct I guess and and quick response than um th than the UK did so that's partly why I ended up coming back so quickly because they were having very clear rules um and uh and actually I remember as well because we had to lay over in, in in Singapore because of that delay that I mentioned um that was interesting because Singapore had already been infected quite significantly so I remember us being a bit concerned that when we had to go into to Singapore that that would affect our ability to come back because obviously we, we now had it documented we'd been in Singapore and I know that some countries weren't accepting travellers from certain countries and um and there they were taking a lot more precautions so they were already everybody was wearing masks they were taking your temperature if you went into anywhere we weren't allowed into the hotel without having a a normal temperature um, you know, all the way they handled food was very careful about, you know, transmission of illnesses and things. So uh, that was almost like seeing <laughs> into the future of, of of what the UK then ended up being like about, you know, six months later, really. <laughs> um, mm. So that was quite interesting in, in hindsight. Yes, yes. Um, so when you got back, um, you, you kind of turned up for duty. What, what was what were they asking medical students to do? What kind of, of work? Um, so, so there was students being asked to help in eventually in, in all different departments. But the very first one that um, they started asking for help with was A&E. And that's where I ended up um, um, working. Um, and so there were kind of three main roles that, that we helped with. And so one was uh, helping at the reception desk with um, just getting patients booked in, um, any administrative tasks that we could help with. One was helping in a, a sort of healthcare assistant type role. So helping with doing ECGs and blood tests and cannulas and uh, urine tests and helping patients go to the toilet, things like that. Um, and then the third role, which is actually what I spent most of my time doing, was um, manning the front door of A&E. And so the idea was that the medical students would take on a role that had been for a little while for a few, you know, they, they instigated it maybe like a, a week or two before, had been run by kind of advanced triage nurses. They'd been um, triaging patients entering the front door of the hospital. So the idea was that we could alleviate that role so that they could then go and do their usual role I think was the the idea originally that was my understanding anyway and basically um we were sort of trained on how to follow um a flow chart to say whether a, a patient coming through the front door needed to go to um one half of the A&E or the other because it had been split in half based on whether they would have respiratory symptoms and could have COVID or whether it was something that we could pretty safely say we didn't think that they had COVID. Um, and so they had drawn lines on the floor even and um, uh, put different colours on the doors to indicate where the separations of the department were. And uh, and they, they made it so that everybody who entered the department came through the same door now. So instead of having sort of ambulance coming in one way, patients coming in another everybody came through this one door and regardless of what they came in with we had to stop them and uh yeah and decide where they went and so even, also, even if they were on a gurney being pushed by paramedics you still yeah exactly yep. exactly 
even if they're on a gurney yeah exactly you you'd say okay one second do they have a fever do they have um any breathing problems are they on oxygen uh any cough any you know all of, we had like a set list of things we checked and if the answers were all no um then they could go to the blue area which is the normal a and &E. um if it was yes to any of them then they would go to the red area which was the the covid a and &E. um and the other part of that role was that if they had any relatives with them um then we had to ask them to leave um and there were some exceptions to that and that kind of the rules around that changed over time as 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 it became more apparent obviously all of these things were measures that were were implemented really quickly and to be honest commendably how quick how quickly in the nhs it was amazing how quickly we made these changes as a department because um you know often in the nhs things take a long long time to change but because of that there was there was like learning curves to be had and you know things that needed to be adjusted over time and you know originally obviously the rules were just like look no visitors no visitors but obviously it became very quickly apparent that there's some groups where that's not appropriate and you know if someone's got learning difficulty or if they're at the end of their life or if um if they're obviously a child they would need a parent you know so there were rules that very quickly it became apparent there were certain groups of people where we they were allowed a visitor um to come with them um but it still meant that there were some I think probably the hardest part of that role was that you know there were still obviously some patients who didn't fall into those special categories um but that uh you know so they weren't allowed a visitor but you felt for them because obviously it was a really difficult situation you can understand mm. why they would want someone with them mm. um so and did the you know, did the did the family members give you a hard time oh some of them did yes mm. yeah mostly not people were really quite understanding um if anything it's you know it's it, it, it's a bit difficult but often to be honest the the patients and the families who were dealing with the most significant you know horrible things often were sometimes the most understanding and um and you know that's makes you feel even worse that that you know in some ways that they're so understanding and they're in such a difficult situation and you really want to help them and it goes against you know what we're trained to do really you, you know you, you always want to involve the family you always want to keep families together um so it, it, you know that feels difficult but you know it, the difficult ones were sometimes often people who were maybe dealing with things that were not quite as serious um, and sometimes might be a bit um, understandably frustrated at the rules. Um, uh, but, you know, taking it out on the, the people in front of them, which, you know, you understand it's not personal, um, but it, it wasn't a pleasant part of the role. But, um, you know, it was some you just had to try and explain that it was to to help their relative and to help mm. other people um to because if they go in with a broken ankle or they go in with a you know a, a cut on their hand but then they come out with covid that's not a, a successful outcome really mm, mm, mm. and how many of you would be on the door at a, at a time so we 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 did it deliberately so that we'd have two people um so that you had that um 
backup in case something was difficult or if the door got really busy and lots of people were arriving at once um, or if you needed to go and check something so there was never the door was never left um, you know not not manned because the shifts would well they were variable in length I can't really remember how long I think they were usually about eight hour long but that's what I was going to ask you I think they were I think they were usually about eight but they they could be longer like 12 sometimes if you did like a night shift it it was it was variable mm. um and did you get a break in the in an eight hour shift or was it eight hours straight so we would just like arrange it amongst ourselves so you do it so there'd be two of you but then so that way if you need to go to the loo or grab some food then you could say to the other one right you go you go and it, it really depended on how you how you sorted it between you so to be honest for me I never had like a break as in I was away from the door really unless I went to the loo because I usually you know because it was quite flexible we tended to sign on with people that we knew or people that we'd done previous shifts with and got knew we got on well because sometimes it was super busy and sometimes there'd be you know downtime where you just that way you'd be able to chat with them and things um and so you want to it's quite nice if it's with someone that you know you get on with well and um so to be honest all the people I did shifts with generally we kind of preferred being together in case we needed someone else there on the door um so what we would do is we would generally bring our food to the to the door and just eat there and then um you know work through our breaks as it were but um yeah it was I just remember it to be honest quite fondly um it was there was a lot of camaraderie and kind of a feeling that you know we weren't doing anything massive but that maybe we were making a little bit of a difference and um I got to know a lot of the other medical students who although maybe I'd been with them for six years in medical school we for, for various reasons you don't you don't always know everybody in your year group very well you know you might be in different practical groups or tutorial groups and things so it was nice to get to know some of them really well and a couple of them I hadn't really known before but now are really good friends that we still keep in contact um so um you know it was a a very different unique experience and kind of a bit you know you bonded over a, a unique experience and, and how long did that go on so that must have been uh three months or two 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 or three months mm-hmm. um and then in may or just well i guess it would have been just before may um we um so some of us, the, those of us who who'd done all of the compulsory parts of our course, we were graduated early by the GMC. So normally we would have been graduated and given G. Well, we were graduated and then given GMC registration. But normally we'd have been graduated and given GMC registration, and I think around July. But so I guess for me it must have happened late April because I remember on May the fourth that we started working as interim foundation doctors which was a new role that they made which would basically be another foundation job before you start your usual foundation program to help in supporting with the the work from covid so i um started as an interim foundation doctor in a and e um from may and worked there until august when i started my normal foundation program 
Mm, mm. And what did the the work in it? You weren't you were no longer minding the door at that stage, presumably. No, no. So <laughs> then, actually, so part of what we did in the last few weeks working in the role of um, the volunteer, well, the, the kind of the, the medical student volunteering role, was we trained up the the fifth years. So they, by that point, because medical school had been closed, basically. Um, they they were then free to to be volunteering if they wanted to so we then trained them to take over our role so that they carried on um and then we stepped up into these interim foundation roles and so for me i mean it it was very different depending on what department you helped in again but for me um being an a and e i think there was maybe so maybe before there was like 30 of us also doing the front door manning from my year but then um most of them ended up then doing if they chose to work as an intrapreneurship doctor went to other departments so there was i think maybe seven of us in in a and e um so still quite a lot of us and we initially um got paired with a more senior doctor and i guess the initial vision for that role was that we would help increase the efficiency of more senior doctors who had more experience. So the idea would be we'd be paired with them, we would go with them, we would do their writing for them, we would do whatever, take the bloods for them if the bloods hadn't been done, we would prescribe medicines, request x-rays, just do all those things so that the more senior doctor could just focus on the right deciding this is what's the problem is and this is what we're going to do about it um, and then we could see more patients as a pair than he could he or she could see on their own um, that was the idea and we did that a bit um, very quickly I guess it depended on what consultant was on but very quickly the role kind of actually more went into just more traditional role as a doctor and actually they were just like actually you're you know you're qualified as doctors just go see patients on your own you know um so so we would see patients probably fewer patients than maybe a more experienced doctor would be able to do but it was a really good learning role and we were still seeing more patients than we would have seen if we weren't there so you know sounds, it was... sounds like being chucked in the <laughs> deep end <laughs> it was it, it it wasn't it it wasn't it wasn't like I think the A&E particularly they're a really supportive team and they, they they were from beginning to end to be honest um and as any f1 job so i actually later in my foundation years i actually already had a foundation placement in a and e in that same department um so i uh i i came back into that role later on as well many months later but that role was very similar to what I did in the interim role. And basically any F1 role in A&E is essentially meant to be supernumerary because they don't want you working night shifts um, uh, or uh, kind of out of hours because you need to have that supervision and uh, you're expected to discuss every case pretty much with, with the consultant um, or with a senior registrar. Um, and so it felt very safe and very uh, a good learning opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, so although it was a big learning curve, it was, um, I think, you know, uh, yeah, very well supported. And, the, you know, I never felt like um, it was unreasonable or, or risky. It was just a good opportunity.
Mm. What what were some of the were there, were there any particularly memorable cases that you saw? Um. Oh goodness, I'm trying to remember back now. <laughs> um. I think. Um, I mean, I remember this. This wasn't from when I was an intern practitioner. This was from when I was um, uh, volunteering on the on the front door. But I, I do remember one thing that that sat with me for quite a while was that there was a quite early into my role, there was a lady who came in who had um, was going through a miscarriage, and she was quite um, early on in her pregnancy. And so uh, whilst if she was coming in, giving birth at the end of the pregnancy, she would be allowed a visitor because it was not that case. She was having a miscarriage. She wasn't able to have someone with her. And so I found that quite difficult. And actually, it was a day where I had um, uh, I was working the front door. So I was the one who had to kind of tell them that they couldn't have someone. And um, she and her partner were really very gracious about it and weren't you know kicking up a fuss or anything but I felt bad because I felt like you know it was unfair in a way um but then I also did a a healthcare assistant type ship later so I made sure to check in on her and see how she was and kind of try and bring her cups of coffee and things because I felt like she was on her own so that one kind of stuck with me that I remember was from that kind of time I don't know if I, to be honest, I don't know if I remember any particular cases from when I was an interim doctor, but I just remember there being a lot of people coming in with COVID. Um, a lot of, um, so a lot less of the kind of the accidents, you know, and things because people weren't doing as many, I don't know, extreme sports, motocross, things like that during the pandemic. But um but still obviously people falling down outside quite a lot, a lot of, um, and a lot of elderly patients particularly um, who were confused and then didn't have people readily available either because in some cases maybe rules or in other cases because their families had COVID so they couldn't come into the hospital and visit for instance and, that being quite difficult and having to um, give bad news on the phone to families a lot. Um, that was quite difficult as well because you feel like you're not maybe, you know, you're not doing it justice to be giving, uh, you know, really bad news about patients becoming end of life and things mm-hmm. on the phone when you'd normally do that face to face. Yeah. Um, so did I mean? Did you actually have people reach the end of their lives in A and E, or would they be moved on to a, another ward by that time? Oh yeah, so definitely there was patients who passed away in A and E, and who would be put on an end of life kind of pathway in A and E for sure. Mm. Obviously, it's more common maybe once they're under the medical team, but sometimes it would be apparent, you know, when they were. Um, still under our care and um, certainly so there's a second part of A&E called the so there's like the emergency assessment unit the EAU and that's both medical and A&E they share it um, and that's sometimes where patients will be um, they'll be kind of held there if they're taking more than the four hour target but they just have a few more things to tie up say and then they might be able to go home 
or have a you know a clearer route um of wh where their care is going um afterwards but within kind of 12 hours so that so they might um be managed there and so another role of this interim foundation job was often to assist with looking after those patients and some of those patients were often quite unwell and um you know kind of decisions being made about uh, what was going to happen to them in terms of where they might go for end of life care and things. So, um, so, so it was definitely in a, you know, something that happened. It was something I probably faced a lot more when I then later on went into my medicine job during the pandemic. Um, but it definitely was a feature of, of that first job as well. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and um, I haven't asked about PPE. I mean, what, what was it actually physically like to be going into work in in a and e under those conditions what 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 were the precautions you had to take so um so when we first started it's kind of obviously difficult to remember back because rules changed so many times um so i hope i'm not remembering wrong but um i remember there being a lot of concern about whether whether there would be enough PPE generally, you know, from people working in hospitals, care homes, GP practices. My experience of the John Radcliffe was that I never didn't have what I needed. Um, they always they always had what what I needed when I was there, which was was really good. I think that maybe there was more problems in things like hospices and GP practices and smaller centres. Um, but the John Radcliffe had you know, at least in A&E, they had obtained adequate PPE. But I remember, so we would usually on the front door, we would wear um, a mask and then an apron and gloves. Um, to be honest, at that time, the rules were a bit unusual in that we would wear an, an apron and gloves. But, you know, obviously we were greeting patients continuously so it wasn't like we could change it between patients whereas obviously the idea would be that now that you would change the gloves and the apron between each patient but I suppose we were more protecting ourselves in terms of that rather than protecting the patients in in that context because you couldn't change it for you know that would be hundreds and hundreds of pieces of PPE <laughs> if we were changing it and not practical so I suppose mm -hmm. that was the idea but um what I do remember was that we had to be very careful with the masks. We we would give a mask to each patient as they came through and if they were allowed a visitor to the visitor as well. And whilst we did have enough masks, we had a very limited supply of the ones that have like the elastic straps. Um, so for us, we obviously were familiar with the ones that you can tie behind your head from that you would use in surgery normally and it you know even though they're a bit fiddly we could sort them out of us so we would use that for ourselves um but we had a lot less of the other kind so we were kind of trying to make sure that if staff came past they that they didn't use that and we were kind of instructed to 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 do that so i remember that being a kind of sort of ra not rationing but something that we had to be <laughs> mindful of mm -hmm. um, but we usually, a few times we would run out, but we'd usually always find a box somewhere. And and in a, when you were working in A&E itself, did you have to wear more comprehensive PPE? Um, so it was, so um, it, it depended uh, where, where you were. So um, again, 
I hope I'm not remembering wrong because the rules change so many times, but usually in, in the non-COVID side of A&E, it would be very similar. We'd wear a mask all the time. And then if you went in to see a patient, you would put on gloves and an apron and ideally a visor if there was any, especially if there was anything that was, um, you know, if if they might, uh, obviously they shouldn't be coughing if they're in that side of A&E, but you know, if you might give them a swab or do something that might make them cough, for instance. Um, if you were in the, uh, the, the red side, the COVID side of A&E, I believe you had to wear an FFP3 mask um, at all times, I think, if I remember right, in that side of A&E. And then if you went into a bay where um, uh, a patient was COVID positive, like known, or if you were doing something that was an aerosol generating procedure, then I think you had to wear level level two PPE. So you would have to wear the full length gowns and uh, the longer gloves over the um, gowns, uh, full visor, obviously still the FFP3 mask. Um, like I said, I'm a bit hazy on exactly what the rules were when, because I know at various times over the course of the next few years, sometimes the rules change between you didn't have to wear an FFP3 mask in the area, but you did if you did an aerosol generating procedure or the patient was known COVID, mm. um, but you could just wear the normal mask otherwise until you went in to see them. You know, things like that changed a lot. Um, I guess, it, you know, and the, the rules, uh, you know, were just changing as you know as evidence came available and to be honest based on what I think probably realistically what PPE was available they had to make decisions on a kind of global public health perspective for, for those in terms of like the you know the policy making and um also um the, the the other significant thing was there was big changes in the rules about uh CPR and um protocols of that so that was part of what we were told about induction and again that's changed quite a few times but that was a significant change at the time that you um you weren't to to uh basically start compressions this was the original rules I think it's changed since although I can't I can't I always have to keep updated to be honest it changes quite often but you weren't meant to start compressions until someone was in full PPE because compressions could be an aerosol generating procedure so the idea would be that you would just put defibrillator pads on first um until someone was in PPE and then could start compressions so all of these things were having to constantly be revised you have to constantly keep um abreast of the changes to make sure you're you know given the best practice um so that was the challenge at the time mm, mm. um and so your your role as an interim foundation doctor that lasted until did you say august yeah so yeah. i i guess it was sort of march to may was when i did the the sort of voluntary medical student role then may till august and then august is when the normal foundation program starts so i i went into my job then and and what was your first um placement as a foundation doctor so that was um, gastroenterology at the JR. Um, and so I did that. And then I went to general medicine at the Horton and then back to A&E at the John Radcliffe. And then my second year was um, ENT um, at the J JR, a GP placement, and then uh, intensive care at the JR and the Churchill. Mm, mm. Um, and so when you went back to A&E, how much of a problem was COVID still at that stage? It was um, 
definitely still there, but a very different different place to where it had been when I'd been there before. Um, because I joined there, it was kind of coming back up to the summer months. So um, that was, uh, you know, the winter had been, I'd been in medicine in winter and I think that had been a really rough job because of, because of that. Um, but when I went back to A&E, things were kind of picking up. Um, at the time, we still had, um, I believe if I remember right, we still had some separation of, of kind of COVID side from, from non-COVID, but it wasn't as firm as it had been when we first had the, the complete split of the two A&Es. There was a lot more um, testing by then than there had been originally. Um, people were more familiar with the PPE, I guess, and the expectations uh and also the rules about visitors um and we were seeing a lot more i think although covid was still there and i think we'd had some vaccines as well so that was helping in the severity uh, but but i think we were seeing a lot more of the other things maybe the things that hadn't um that hadn't had kind of built up from from covid i think you know that weren't covid related i think one thing i forgot to mention about the first time round in A&E was what was quite shocking sometimes was seeing things that haven't been really seen that often um, in sort of in my my generation of, of medics because of modern medicine. So, for instance, um, I know some of my friends who volunteered in um, cardiology saw a lot more uh, ventricular wall ruptures um, following heart attacks. And so that's a kind of like a late stage complication where if you don't get a heart, a heart attack seen to, sometimes the wall can literally tear. And mostly they do happen, but they're a lot less common nowadays because people get really quick attention. Um, but they were telling me that they were sort of anecdotally seeing a lot more of these because um, they felt because people weren't seeking as much emergency help when they had a bit of a chest pain or a bit of a niggle they were more inclined to stay at home because of the worry about covid and so those kind of things although rare still were more anecdotally seeming more common during that first wave in comparison maybe this second time when i came back to a&e it wasn't so much that kind of thing but more maybe people managing chronic conditions who had a meant to have an appointment six months ago that for some reason didn't happen and so they're still in pain. And so they're getting quite frustrated and coming to A&E, thing, things like that, or think little, little things that if you leave it a long time become bigger and that people get more frustrated about, understandably, and uh, people feeling like they can't access their GP, a lot of frustration about people feeling that um, maybe that they find it difficult to get through to their GP and get a face-to-face -face appointment. So they come to A&E. So that was a lot of what I was dealing with, I would say, in that second job. Mm, mm, mm. And and your, your um, uh, I don't know what you call it, tour? No, uh, <laughs> I used the word placement before. Um, where, when you went to intensive care, mm. what, were there still COVID cases in intensive care? Yeah, so yeah. when by the time I came to intensive care, so that was uh, this, well, I suppose it's last year now because we're just into 2023, but yes. that would that would have been sort of summer of 2022. Mm. So that's quite far in now. We were still seeing COVID cases. However, the big difference was 
to be honest, usually either they were they had COVID, but they actually were in ICU really for something else. Oh, and see. it was uh, uh, either an incidental finding or they had something and COVID or the people who had COVID very badly and they didn't have something else. It was that they were unvaccinated, to be honest. That was that was what we were seeing. Mm. There were very few people who were there just with COVID. And if they were, they were almost always unvaccinated. And if they weren't unvaccinated, they usually had some other massive uh, condition that meant that they were really immunocompromised, like, a you know, on chemotherapy, some, something like that. Um, and that became re- that, that was really quite clear. But I would say most of the patients didn't have COVID most of the time. But we had these kind of over the four months I was there, sort of peaks and troughs where you know occasionally. So so what we kind of did was as if we just had one or two cases, we would put them in side rooms and manage them that way with the enhanced PPE for the side rooms. But as more and more people would have COVID, if there were these peaks, we would then sort of cohort them all into one side of A&E and then make that, not A&E, sorry, ICU, and make that kind of COVID ICU. And and then there would be a whole section where you would have enhanced PPE going into there. And then as the cases went down again, we would again move them into side rooms and then manage the rest of the department as non-COVID, if that makes sense. Mm, mm. Um, yeah. So it, it sounds as though your whole experience over the last two years has given you, maybe it's always like this, but it seems to me anyway, well, tell me if this is wrong, uh, that the fact that there was a pandemic going on gave you a kind of enhanced crash course in practically everything you were likely to encounter <laughs> in a medical career. <laughs> it's a really interesting one that you say that to be to be honest because um I think people have very different opinions on it because I've had quite a few seniors during the, those two foundation years make comments either you know to me or kind of to the room that that they feel that actually our education has been really disrupted um and that they feel that we'll be less qualified because of it um less you know I don't know less experience because of it I suppose um and their reasoning is often because because we've been dealing with COVID all we'll know how to deal with is COVID and we won't know how to deal with everything else um I think I can see kind of both both sides but I don't really I don't agree with that argument because I think we've seen a lot more than just COVID often, to be honest, especially the last year or so. Like I said, it's mostly been if they've got COVID, they've got COVID and something else. A lot of the time, most patients, um, especially yeah, with, since, since, since people have had multiple vaccines, that's definitely seemed to be the case. Um, but what I would say is that I think that having seen what training used to be like when I was a med student for, you know, foundation doctors you know because when you're on the wards you kind of you know you potter around you're very much sort of fly on the wall you can see what things are like and seeing from from the view of when I was maybe a fourth year or fifth year medical student seeing what the training opportunities and quality used to be like for foundation doctors and core trainees um, I think that there's a lot less training opportunities and I think that generally whilst there are still some amazing senior doctors who will take trainees under their wing and take the opportunities to teach them things, the whole system is so much more stretched now. 
and uh, everybody has a lot less time because we're dealing with higher volumes of patients, higher acuity of patients generally, with fewer staff members. Um, there's just a lot less time for training. And I think that... So, so you're getting less kind of directed supervision and simply having to go from patient to patient doing the best you can. It feels, yeah, to be honest, I feel like, I feel like whilst, I feel like, you know, we're supervised from the point of view of uh, making sure the patient care is safe. You know, you know, I will always make sure if I see a patient, if there's any questions I have that I'm worried about for that patient's safety, I will always make sure that they're addressed and I'll talk to a senior about that. That kind of supervision doesn't worry me. If you, you can always access that some way if you need it, to be honest. But I think there's less supervision from the point of view of actually, where's your training going? What do you need to do to become a better doctor longer term to get exposure to the things that interest you or the things that you haven't had as much experience of? Because there's just a lot less time and energy available for that. And I don't blame the seniors for it. And I don't blame my colleagues or myself for it or, or whatever. It's just the system. Everybody's so stretched that, to be honest, I do think that generally people aren't prioritising teaching junior doctors. And I mean, I even see it in myself, although I desperately fight against it because I love teaching. Like I said, I, I teach it for my for my college um, and if I ever have uh, foundation doctors with me or medical students with me I try and take as much time as possible to show them things and at least make that afternoon or whatever time they're with me valuable in some way because I know how disheartening it is if that doesn't happen but equally when you're really stretched and really busy and you've got so much service provision to be to be doing um, sometimes it's just not possible um, and so yeah it, it does feel a lot of the time like almost all of the job is service provision when actually we're in a training role you know it is a training post and so you know if you're a junior doctor you're still in training in some way so there should be a certain amount of time allocated to learning and to teaching as well mm -hmm. um, but it's very it's very difficult because I think consultants job plans and things are very stretched and the whole service is very stretched so yeah I think it's, it's it's you can view it either way I think we've in some ways had a very steep learning curve those of us who started during the pandemic and I think that I think that what we have gained is maybe a lot of uh, experience of being flexible and trying to adapt and being used to rules changing all the time and keeping abreast of of changes and often stepping up into roles more senior than we would have otherwise um but then I think that maybe we've had less opportunities to do things say if I was interested I'm, I'm obviously doing psychiatry so procedures aren't something for instance that I'm that interested in getting lots of exposure to when I was in foundation years but for someone who is interested in doing medicine I think there was a lot less opportunities to do things like lumbar punctures and chest strains and things like that that would be really useful experiences um because there just wasn't enough time and opportunity for seniors to, to, to supervise you for them. And that means that you will get core trainees in two, three years time who have a lot less experience of doing those things. Mm, mm. 
And what about the morale of, of the, the junior doctor workforce? Are they, I mean, are you seeing contemporaries deciding to throw it all in? Yeah, I think that's a really big issue, to be honest. Um, and so I have got friends and colleagues who have already decided to leave clinical medicine completely. Um, and for various things to do research or management consultancy or um, I've got a friend who's doing med, med tech um, and teaching. Um, and, and, I, and I've considered myself like leaving, you know, to be honest as well, um, was quite close to leaving earlier this year. Um, and whilst I love medicine, I wouldn't rule it out in the future as well, because I think there's a lot of issues with uh, staff wellbeing, morale, um, and, uh, you know, my close friends and also students that I've taught in the past who are now foundation doctors I see struggling really really badly um, with mental health and with um, with managing the expectations of jobs under such difficult situations and um, and I feel like I've been been there myself in those mm. situations too and I think, um, I don't know what the solution is, but I think that there needs to be something major changing in the way that we we train doctors and we uh, look after doctors. And I'm sure the same goes for nursing and other allied health professionals. But um, I feel like since the pan, I mean, that we weren't in a brilliant position before the pandemic, and since the pandemic, it feels like everybody's been working at speed 110 and it's never really stopped. But yet the workload has increased even more because now there's uh, all of the routine things that were kind of put on a bit of a hold or were, you know, waiting lists were building up, for instance, over the time of pandemic where understandably we had to prioritise the most emergency cases those things haven't gone away. They're still there and they're just adding to that workload. Um, and I mean, you do see a lot of rotor gaps, a lot of um, people needing to take, to take time off understandably for mental health. And um, so I think that we are going to need to do something to invest in, in, the well-being and morale of staff. I think otherwise it's going to, just only escalate. Mm, mm. Yeah, that's the, not a not a good picture. Um, so, um, just finally, I've just got a few questions about what how you found living through the pandemic. Um, I mean, first of all, given the position you were in, standing at the front door of the hospital, uh, seeing all these patients coming in, some of whom may have had COVID, how mm. frightened were you of actually being infected yourself? So, so I was, um, I, I wasn't, I, I was scared of, of, of getting COVID, like I'm sure everybody was to an extent, but I wasn't really so much worried for me as worried that I would then pass it on to a patient or a friend or family or something. Um, so I was living on my own at the time because my flatmate, she had moved in with her mum as kind of lockdown started so I was living on my own um and 
I know obviously lockdown rules changed at different times. I can't remember exactly the timing, but I remember that I deliberately, uh, even once I was allowed to go to see a, my support bubble, as it were, which would have been my uh, parents, I deliberately didn't see them for several months because I didn't want to risk giving them COVID given um, like the, how high risk I would be really seeing every person coming in through the hospital doors. Um, I did actually become unwell um, during the summer with this like a respiratory illness. At that time we were only kind of doing, we didn't have lateral flows, we just had the PCRs. And so I had one PCR, which was negative, but then I had all the symptoms of COVID including really bad shortness of breath and exertion. So I really was like, I couldn't, like if I walked from door to door, I would be like panting. Mm. So I actually had to take Loss, loss of taste and smell. Did you lose, lose taste and smell? Um, not that time mm. I did, I, <laughs> but I, um, I, I had basically everything else and I had a persistent cough, which I then had for eight weeks. Mm. So I, I don't know, obviously the PCR was negative, but I, I don't really see what else it likely would have been, especially given that I was working in COVID A&E and seeing COVID is probably the most likely thing. It's more likely that I just had one negative PCR, which we know are not, we're not, you know, infallible. Um, mm. So I had that um, and was quite unwell with that for two weeks. Um, so then, um, so then a bit, to be honest, after that, I relaxed a little bit, feeling that I probably had had it. Um, obviously, I was still obviously obeying all of the rules, etc. But, you know, I felt a bit more relaxed and a bit less scared because I felt like hopefully that means that I've had it and then um, I've been OK in the end. But the cough lasted a long time. Um, but then, yeah, I've, I've had COVID twice, actually positive swabs um, <laughs> since and I lost my taste and smell on one of those two times um, <laughs> um uh both i think caught from from work they both were times when i was working in in uh environments where lots of people had covid either staff or patients and um i so you know it's it's an occupational hazard in a way but um i suppose now it's circulating so much that anyone could catch it from anywhere but um at least by then, because I'd had COVID um, and then I'd had the first vaccine the second time I had it, it wasn't as severe. Um, so, um, you know, I think the vaccines have done a lot of good with with reducing the severity for people and for reducing, um, yeah, reducing ICU admissions. And And... Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've been asking everyone this, and I, I guess you've partly answered it. But do you think the fact that you were able to work on something that was, um, you know, helping people, doing good, helped to support your own well-being, or was it so stressful that um, uh, that didn't make much difference? No, I definitely think it, the vol like the, the medical student role and the interim foundation role, I definitely think helped. Um, it was difficult because obviously I was away from my parents and if I wasn't volunteering then I could have been with my pet with my family my parents and that would have helped kind of my, I guess my well-being in a, in a different way um but if I was you know in the situation that I was where I was going to hospital and I was living alone 
I was really glad, to be honest, to have this role where I was able to leave the house and go into the hospital and see people and talk to people. Um, and like I said, at that time, there was a lot of morale, like team morale and camaraderie um, right at the beginning. Um, and uh, I think I, I know a lot of people who who kind of worked from home, especially those who worked from home and lived alone really struggled during the pandemic with their mental health and understandably because they couldn't socialize with people they felt very isolated and I definitely felt that being able to go to the hospital and see colleagues and talk to patients um, that socialization I really needed so actually for me as well as hopefully helping with with you know the healthcare for these patients it really helped me to have something that I felt like I was doing that was helpful and that meant that I could see people. Mm, excellent so this is uh, this is probably the final question so has the experience of, of working through the pandemic um, changed your attitude or your approach to your work and um, what would you like to see change in the future? I think it definitely has in a in like a variety of ways that probably would take way too long to explore them all. Um, um, but I would say, like, sorry, <coughs> I'd say probably one of the most notable is that it made me realise that, um, sorry, I've got a bit of a tickly throat. It's all right. Carry on. <coughs> sorry, I'm just going to take a quick trick of water, <laughs> otherwise I'll be coughing. Um, so sorry. So one thing was that I would say is that it has made me realise how important the role of kind of families and carers is in um, in patients' recovery and um, <clears throat> in um, making sure that uh, people are happy with the plan. And um, I think that being having to give bad news and things over the phone to relatives and not being able to address kind of the psychosocial needs of a lot of our patients really affected me during COVID and I think really made me realize um, how much that's important to me and how we deal with things and how whilst you can do everything perfectly right in terms of right I'm going to give you this medicine um, we're going to get this investigation, we're going to book you this clinic, people can still feel really unhappy with the care they're receiving, or you can be completely <clears throat> missing the point or missing what's actually affecting them if you disregard what's going on with their family or what's going on with their mental health. Um, and, and I think a lot of the way the pandemic affected us caused us to have to work in that way by necessity because we were dealing with emergency things and so I think that's what's led me to do psychiatry in a way so I think that made a big change change me in the way I practice because I was thinking of doing mostly physical health medicine before and now I've gone towards mental health and I think that's because it's highlighted to me the importance of that and then I think also it's really highlighted the importance of staff well-being sorry and the importance of um that you can't um you can't continue at working at that kind of giving 110 percent um pace forever 
we there will be a point where that's not possible and I think a lot of what we do in the NHS relies on on the goodwill of people people willing to spend that extra half an hour hour three hours of their own free time to do what's needed to make sure their patients are taken care of well um which is admirable and I've done it all my colleagues do it you know I don't think I could name a doctor who hasn't done that or a nurse that hasn't done that and it's difficult because it's a vocation so um we obviously want to do that because we want what's best for our patients and we care about them above you know above all else in a way but you can't do that forever and I think what we'll need what needs to change I don't know how but I think that the system we need to have more doctors we need to have more nurses we need to have more uh more support so that people are trained better and have more time for for training and the things that bring them enrichment in their job whether that's you know a nurse having more time to look at the her area of special interest or his area of special interest or whether it's a core trainee being able to go and do that procedure with supervision or or whatever and then we need you know more doctors and nurses on the rotors so that people <coughs> sorry can hand over on time can leave on time so that they don't become um overwhelmed with their work.